0: Well, hello there. It is great to see you again and welcome back to the latest installment of Closing Arguments. I'm your host and moderator, Ryan Ruff, and we've got the star of our show as always. Mr. John Razimich or Jack Razimich, as those closest know him by, uh, joining us in just a few moments uh, to dive into another criminal law-related discussion. Uh, if you were able to join us for our last episode, you know that we took a deep dive into really a forgotten legal landmark. That's the United States for SHIP case. We got through part one today. We're going to be covering part two. There's still a lot to unpack within this case. You know, we'll be bringing Jack on in just a moment to to dive into what you know these odds and ends look like and kind of the fallout of the case, the aftermath, and then of course the legal arguments and the trial itself. So there's a lot of good stuff that we're going to be getting into today regarding this case. We'll also, of course, for those of you that may have missed part one, we'll carve out some time to give a you know, a quick overview from Jack as to what went down in, in, you know, part one. Uh, But also just a quick note, for those of you that are joining us live today on the Facebook live stream, we appreciate you being here. Uh, Hey, one of the benefits of doing this thing live and joining us here on the live stream is the ability to leave a comment or even a question below. So throughout the course of today's episode, if there's anything that uh, is intriguing to you or maybe you have a question that you'd like answered, feel free to drop it in the box below. Jack and I will carve out some time to make sure we address those comments and questions uh, as a thank you to you guys for being live with us here today. Now, on the flip side, though, if you're joining us maybe on YouTube or a podcasting platform afterwards, all the same, still appreciate you being here. Uh, maybe we'll be able to have you live with us next time around. Uh, and if you need any uh, indication as to when we're going live, uh, you can always head over to the Razumich Associates Facebook page for that information. So with that being said, hey, let's go ahead and bring on the star of the show. Mr. Jack Rasmich to get today's conversation rocking and rolling. Jack, good to see you. How, how's everything? Hey,
1: Ryan, not too bad as as we're recording this. We're a couple days away from Snowmageddon 2022 here in <laughs> Indianapolis. So fingers crossed for all that.
0: Yeah, hunk, yeah, battening down the hatches, yeah. indeed. Um, well, hey, Jack, I know you've got a few housekeeping items that you wanted to mention before we get into today's conversation. Obviously, we're seeing you, I believe, through a new camera today. Talk talk to me about that.
1: That is correct. Um, we do listen to uh, to the comments. We do read all of them, even the mean ones. Um, so we, we are aware that the equipment that we've been using previously was not necessarily up to snuff. Um, the good news is we had always intended to order new equipment um so for those of you who are watching hopefully you can see the difference for those of you who are listening hopefully you can hear the difference uh, that equipment did not arrive before the last episode but we do have it set up now um i do want to uh say a special thanks to sam johnson and moondog photography for helping me to figure out what accessories i needed to make all this work and to uh rob branch from rabbit hole podcast in helping me to make sure that uh, my office was not more of a fire hazard than it normally is with all the extra cables strewn about. Um, if there is an issue with the video quality now, uh, it's it's Comcast's fault. We've done everything on our part to do that. Um, it is now an internet issue with Comcast. We are limited and subject to their whims like every other Comcast member is. Indeed. But, you know, indeed.
0: That's where we're in the that. same boat. <laughs> I'm in the same boat. Well, uh, hey, look, it's great to great to obviously have the the upgraded equipment. So I'm excited, obviously, not only for today's episode, but all all the great conversations we're gonna have moving forward. Jack, uh, let's do our audience a little bit of a favor here. Uh, For those that may have not joined us for part one, which would have been the last episode where we detailed the case of United States versus ship, could you maybe kind of give us a little bit of a consolidated overview on this case to bring us up to speed as to, you know, where we left off, really?
1: Absolutely. And that's the other housekeeping tip I wanted to go into Uh, for the benefit of people who are listening on the uh, podcast platform of uh, of their choice, whether that's Audible Uh, podcast, Attic, uh, Spotify, any Apple Music, anywhere like that. Um, We are aware that there was an issue with uh, episode five that has been re-uploaded. Previously, it had cut off at about the 32 minute mark. Uh, We got notification that and that has been fixed. So uh, by the time this episode goes up, you can listen to both of them back to back and get the complete story. For the benefit of those who missed the first episode, uh, again, here is your content warning. This is dealing with a uh, sexual assault as well as a racial lynching in the South in the early 20th century. Uh, to hit the high points of it, uh, going over my notes, uh, back in, uh, Janu- on January 23rd of 1906, a young woman by the name of Nevada Taylor was stepping off of a train and uh was ambushed from behind a leather strap was put around her neck she was told that if she screamed or made any noise uh the person who was choking her would kill her Uh, she wakes up maybe 30 40 minutes later uh, knows that something has happened runs to her father reports the fact that she's been assaulted from there within the next day uh the local press in chattanooga tennessee which is where all this happened They report that uh, a a Negro brute was responsible for the attack. This is extremely important for the background of our story because Nevada Taylor did not in any way, shape or form make an identification of the race of her attacker. Her comment was only that it was a man's voice. She couldn't see him. Uh, She couldn't identify him. But the press runs with the concept that it's a uh, black male. Uh, the day after that story comes out, the local sheriff, John Shipp, the governor of Tennessee and the uh, county judge for Hamilton County, which is where uh, Chattanooga is located, offer a three hundred seventy five dollar in cash reward, which adjusted for inflation from 1906 to 2022. Is the equivalent of somewhere between nine and $10,000 of cash. They offer a reward for any information leading to the arrest of the person that attacked Nevada Taylor. Um, Ed Johnson is identified by the town drunk, a guy by the name of Will Hickson. Uh, Ed Johnson is very quickly arrested uh very quickly identified as being the perpetrator of this crime despite the fact that he had what most people would consider to be a rock-solid alibi he had um about a dozen people who were uh, capable of stating that he was at the last chance saloon which is where he worked on the night of the attack um Sheriff Ship realizing that uh, keeping Ed Johnson in Chattanooga while the case was pending trial, decided that moving him to Nashville for his safety was the appropriate thing to do. This is an incredibly good decision because over the next two days, uh, the Chattanooga, the Hamilton County Jail uh, in Chattanooga was under siege uh, by people who were looking to lynch Ed Johnson. Um, In fact, during the pendency of the trial, um, which we'll get into in one moment as a recap, uh, Ed Johnson was being housed in Tennessee. Um, It comes back. He's he's arraigned very quickly. We're about five days from the attack. Ed Johnson gets arraigned. Uh, The judge appoints two attorneys to represent him. Unfortunately, neither of them have ever handled a criminal case in their entire life. So a retired judge comes out of retirement specifically to volunteer his services to Ed Johnson to make sure that he gets as fair a trial as he possibly can. The judge advises that he's not granting any continuances, he's not granting any change of venues, and the trial is going to happen in 10 days. At that trial, given all of the pretrial press and pretrial publicity, Nevada Taylor has now taken it unto herself that she was attacked by a black man, and more specifically, that she was attacked by this particular black man, Ed Johnson. Um, The trial is at best a clown show during the pendency, during the jury deliberations at one point in time. Uh, one of the jurors, uh, Nevada Taylor, is recalled to the stand to answer additional questions from the jury. One of the jurors uh, asks her to state positively that this was the Negro that attacked her. Um, kind of giving into the bloodlust, giving into social pressures, however you want to phrase it. Nevada Taylor says that she believes that he is the guilty man. One of the jurors leaps over the the uh, the jury box barricade and tries to attack Ed Johnson, uh, which is, as most of you can probably appreciate, extremely out of the ordinary. He has to actually be restrained by his fellow jurors. Uh, and then afterwards, he's sent back to continue deliberations, despite the fact that he yelled out into the court record, if I could get my hands on him, I would tear his heart out right now. Um, to no one's great surprise, Ed Johnson is convicted. And where we ended up leaving off our last episode, uh, the judge has indicated that he is condemning Ed Johnson to death. He told the attorneys, uh, don't bother appealing it. He can either die at the hands of the law or the hands of the mob. Uh, Also, um, this execution is taking place in 30 days in the basement of the courthouse. So again, just everything is moving very rapidly. Mm -hmm. Everything is moving very haphazardly. And and absolutely in a travesty of what we would consider to be justice. And that is our, I don't know, five minute summary of of last. I gotta say, Uh, you did a
0: fantastic job of consolidating that. Uh, For those of you that you know were with us for the last episode, you'd you'd understand what I'm saying. For those that might want a little more detail, head on back and check out episode five. There's a lot of fireworks in this case, specifically in the courtroom, as Jack just mentioned. A lot of interesting information. You know, uh, one thing that I know, Jack. Obviously, we're gonna get going here in part two in just a moment, but a. Really interesting part of this whole conversation in part one was the role and the power of the media and the press really played throughout this process and how that really kind of stoked the fire and led people towards Ed Johnson to begin with. Um, So again, check out, head on back if you missed our last episode, but Jack, let's, let's step forward now into part two, walk us through, you know, this, the, you know, what really what became the, the demise really of Ed Johnson.
1: Sure. Um, and, and again, as I said, we are very clearly dealing with the lynching, um, as I mentioned last time. Unfortunately, Ed is not going to live to see the end of this case. Uh, it's a remarkable tragedy. Um, the next people that really come into this case as far as uh, important players on this are the attorneys um, Noah Pardon and Stiles Hutchins. And Mr. Pardon and Mr. Hutchins should go down as as living legal legends. Um, The arguments that they made or or, or will have made in Ed Johnson's case, as as we move forward, they were completely right about everything, and I and we'll go over that kind of a little bit clearer when it gets to the recap point because it'll make a little bit more sense then. Um, But the problem that Noah Pardon and Styles Hutchins had, unfortunately, is they were black attorneys in the South in 1906, um, they as such did not get the same recognition that, uh, that they should have. They have very much fallen by the wayside of history. It, a lot of times in historical legal contexts, uh, you'll get the occasional judge, the occasional attorney. It's mostly the defendants that we remember in them because the cases are named after them. Um, honestly, as far as I'm concerned, there should be statues to these two attorneys. They were that good and that competent in a situation and a time frame when that was not considered to be expected. But they're the next attorneys who come into this case. They were not officially part of Ed Johnson's legal team. In in the circumstances that were leading up to it. Again, remember this is 1906. We're in Chattanooga, Tennessee. This is not exactly a very equal rights friendly area and even though um even though ed johnson was also black uh, styles hutchins and uh noah pardon were not allowed to participate in the defense of that case the way that the court system was set up in tennessee is that uh the only cases that black litigants could be involved black attorneys could be involved in our were cases where all the litigants were black so you have a black plaintiff and a black defendant in this particular case because uh, it was a state prosecution they were not allowed to participate in that um, so they unofficially helped with the defense they were actually the Tennessee's they were they were actually the attorneys who were very instrumental in helping track down Ed Johnson's Alibi witnesses at the last chance saloon so they weren't officially part of the case they did help around the margins that way trying to help get those uh those alibi witnesses and they were of course very well aware of everything that was going on it was hard not to be aware of everything that was going on Mm -hmm. um in, in, in chattanooga at the time so ed johnson's been condemned to death and his father shows up at their office basically begging them to take ed's case on appeal because again remember his three existing lawyers uh, the two civil attorneys who, uh, their names have, have mostly been lost to time, uh, and Lewis Shepard, who, who valiantly put up every single fight that he could to make this work out. Um, you know, they basically told him like, look, the judges said, this is, this is what's happening. There's nothing for us to appeal, you know, just sorry about your fate. Um, so Ed Johnson's father is basically banging. He's like, you know, look, no one is taking this appeal. No one is doing this. You have to do this. And um, they, he was turned down at first. Um, wow. Noah Pardon was extremely reluctant to to take on the case, and and part of that was very much the sensationalism of it. Part of it was the the background information with regards to. Um, You know, you have you have a white female victim and a black man accused of it. There were safety concerns that he had for himself and his own family. And he absolutely refused to take the case. The reason that they did get involved is that Mr. Hutchins basically cajoled and, and effectively bullied him into taking it. You know, the argument being that, you know, we have an obligation under law, we have an obligation to the helpless. We have an obligation to people who look like us. No one else is going to do this. If not us, then who? And, you know, eventually Mr. Pardon kind of relented and, and they came on to the case. So the first formal appearance that Mr. Pardon and Mr. Hutchins have is on February 13, 1906. Um, so this is uh, four days after Ed Johnson's been condemned to death. And they they are in front of Judge Samuel McReynolds, our, our old friend Judge McReynolds, the guy who wouldn't move the trial, who wouldn't grant continuances, who uh, did everything humanly possible to try oh, to move yeah. this case as quickly as we could. Yeah. They're in front of that judge again, and they're asking for a new trial. And the argument that um, the attorneys are using is something that would very clearly be understood as a basis for a new trial. Today. They're arguing that... There was significant doubt about Mr. Johnson's guilt, basically a situation of, again, we've got 12 eyewitnesses who say he wasn't there and a town drunk who says that he saw him in the area. That's pretty reasonable doubt. Oh, and his previous lawyers abandoned him by convincing him to waive his right to appeal, which even back then, again, this is all very nascent, but everyone understood, you still have the right to appeal a conviction. Um, but his attorneys telling him to abandon it um, that seems bad. That seems like maybe a basis for retrying this case. Uh, yeah. That did not work, as I'm sure you can imagine. Uh, Judge McReynolds mm-hmm. uh, citing a local rule that mentioned that a new trial – request for a new trial needed to be filed within 72 hours of a verdict. The case was uh, – the, the issue was considered moot. And in Jeez. in shades of how some things never how, – how the more things change, the more things stay the same – um, it's not quite that short a period of time these days, but that is a very technical rule that most modern courts will adhere to, the idea mm. that, okay, this is the procedural rule that needs to be followed. If you're not following the procedural rules, you're not getting it. Uh, mm-hmm. So that argument didn't go. The argument was like, well, it's been more than 72 hours. Sorry, you don't get your new trial on that. Jeez. The next argument that they they made, and, and and sorry, let me let me back up a second. Because I've actually got a quote here that I want to go over because again, remember, this is all back. This is this is fascinating stuff. This is back when stenographers have to take these things down by hand. So mm-hmm. there are these giant paper ledgers in these old law schools and law libraries and what have you, where you can actually read what's written out on this stuff. And in addition to throwing out the request for a new trial, um, Judge McReynolds. Just to give you an idea of, again, the type of person that we're working with, Judge McReynolds on the records dresses down the two attorneys saying, what can two Negro lawyers do that the defendant's previous three attorneys who were unable to achieve? Do you think you know the law better than this court or the lawyers who represent the defendant? Do you think a Negro lawyer could ever be smarter or know the law better than a white lawyer? It was a lovely time.
0: so, yes, yes, one could say. Oh yeah. my goodness. So
1: things have not improved is is probably the short version of it. Sure. Um so now that they've got now that they have a new final judgment to appeal because mm-hmm. judgments come off a final judgment so it, the first issue was like okay, we have a we have a verdict, that's a final judgment that can be appealed. We have made a motion for a new trial. That is something right. that's been denied and is now represents a final judgment that can be appealed. Pardon and Hutchins were smart. They didn't know the law better than Judge McReynolds because mm-hmm. they used that final judgment from Judge McReynolds to appeal that to argue that they were entitled to a new trial. Uh, so taking Judge McReynolds, which I, I can guarantee you did not make him very happy. <laughs> oh, my gosh.
0: But well played. Uh, but touche. Well played.
1: <laughs> right. So uh, they appeal that up, and, and they do that within the appropriate procedural time limits for filing the appeal so on february 20 of 1906 a week later um pardon and hutchins file an appeal with the tennessee supreme court as well as a writ of supersedus, uh which would basically be it's it, it's a fancy latin term it's basically a request for an order to not do something is what that is and um they file that writ requesting an emergency stay of the execution that was denied by the Tennessee Supreme Court on March 3rd in 1906. Now, remember, we've only gotten until March 13th before they're due to hang at Johnson. So, so the clock is ticking down. So they filed a request of mm-hmm. the Supreme Court looking to appeal um, the denial of the new trial. That gets shot down. We've got 10 days left that we have to work at. So here's where... The absolutely legendary thing happens, which is why this case is so important as far as its presidential value. You've got 10 days until Ed Johnson is scheduled to be executed. You're out of options with the state of Tennessee. This is where you throw what's referred to. This is where your Hail Mary pass comes in. So what Pardon and Hutchins do is they file a petition with the United States District Court in Knoxville, Tennessee, under the habeas corpus act of 1867 and the reason that this is a a huge huge hail mary pass is no one actually knows what the habeas corpus act of 1867 does um the law was passed obviously like it says it was passed in 1867 and all it said was that um the habeas corpus act allowed defendants in state criminal actions to request that a federal court review the case if the defendant believed that there had been prison in violation of their federal constitutional rights. This is before the concept of incorporation. Um, incorporation is a subject that we'll talk about in a future episode, but just to kind of hit the high point, the, the Bill of Rights, the Federal Constitution, those rights are originally restraining the federal government, they started to apply to the individual states through a legal mechanism as referred to as incorporation, where the 14th Amendment applied those rights to the states. The Federal Habeas Corpus Act of 1867 came along with the 14th Amendment. It was part of the uh, enforcement mechanism of the 14th Amendment, but it had never been tried before. No one knew what the federal habeas corpus act actually did. So the idea that they were gonna file in the federal courts for a review of the state court decision, no one had ever tried it before. This is is legitimately new legal ground. This is something brand new. These are the first two attorneys who have ever tried this. These are two Mm -hmm. black attorneys who have just been insulted by a judge that they don't know the law as well as he does. They use his own order against him to kind of appeal that. You know, he, they've been told that they don't know the law as good as any white attorneys and they're doing something that no white attorney has ever done. And the important wow. thing is they're doing it right and it works.
0: Ah, uh, that's awesome. I mean, no, no wonder we're talking about a forgotten legal landmark here. I mean, exactly. boy is that just I mean, it's awesome. That's just a great, great word to describe that action. By the, all right. Keep it. Keep us going, Jack. What, what are we where do we go from here?
1: So what happens is the the petition for habeas corpus, which is the same type of petition for habeas corpus that still gets filed now, uh, over a century later in 2022. They file a nine-page petition with the federal court that argues that Ed Johnson's lawyers were denied the right to file pretrial motions. That's correct. They weren't allowed to file motions for continuance. They weren't allowed to file motions for change of venue. The trial was unfairly influenced by the threat of mob violence, that's a given. You know, they did try to storm the jail for two days. Only white people were summoned to jury service. While that was technically correct, that was unfortunately not something the courts would address for another half century, but that's a side issue. Um, and that Mr. Johnson's lawyers had abandoned him by waiving, by advising him that he waive his appellate rights. Um, those are all federal constitutional rights to a fair trial, fair representation uh, under the Fifth and Sixth Amendments that. Would technically fall under the federal habeas corpus act. Um, they even brought up the other irregularities, like you know, the juror attempting to attack the defendant in open court. So the district judge um, for for Tennessee at that time, C.D. Clark, ordered that a hearing would be held on uh, March 10 of 1906. So again, this is three days. This is three wow. days before Ed Johnson is ordered to be executed. The federal government steps in. The federal judiciary steps in and says, no, we want to hear this. So, again, this is everything coming right down to the wire on this.
0: And that's and that's been a recurring theme, Jack, throughout this whole – I mean, you want to talk about fast and speedy trials. This is what – you know. we have been experiencing it from start to finish through this entire thing. So given that consolidated timeline, I feel like it's worth emphasizing how important it is that the federal government stepped in – you know, in such a consolidated amount of time, you know, nowadays, obviously we know the federal government's not really do too much in such a fast amount of time, but here they are stepping right in, you know, at the 11th hour, if you will, to, to interject and, and to keep things rolling. So take us further.
1: So they managed to get the hearing and they, they expedited the hearing on uh, on March 10 and the hearing lasted for about eight hours and among the witnesses who were called, they called Mr. Johnson's three original lawyers who all testified under oath and signed affidavits that the threat of a lynch mob influenced their their, their decisions. Because, again, um, when they told Ed Johnson to abandon his right to appeal... They were very cognizant to the idea of like either he dies at the hangman's noose or he dies at the mob's noose, and we don't really want to die at the mob's noose either. So that influenced your decisions absolutely as far as the the uh, the the advice that they gave to him. Um, They called a deputy clerk in the Hamilton County Clerk's Office who testified that he could only remember one black person ever having been summoned for jury duty in Hamilton County. The district attorney was called uh, and argued that there was no violation of Ed Johnson's federal rights, which, remember, at this time weren't exactly well defined what those were. And uh, Samuel Judge McReynolds, Judge McReynolds, gets called in by a written mandamus from the federal court. And his position is that, in his opinion, as the judicial officer that oversaw the trial, uh, the trial was absolutely fair. I'm sure we're all shocked by that. Sure. So oh what,
0: ends up,
1: what ends up happening is is Judge Clark, after hearing eight hours of testimony, he goes back into his chambers, and he deliberates on it for a little over three hours. And at 1247 a.m. the following day on March 11, 1906, he announces his decision. And his decision, which is a matter of public record, the the way that judicial decisions, all federal decisions are recorded by the federal government as part of the the, the National Archives Act. So you can actually, um, if you want to go looking for this, you can actually read the entire decision that Judge Clark sets out. But what his decision, his decision states that counsel were absolutely to an extent terrorized on the account of the fear of the mob, uh he indicated he had doubts about the state's case against mr johnson however because there's always a however because again remember we're dealing with new law right now mm-hmm. he did not believe that the constitution actually authorized him to grant any type of habeas petition because this has never been done before this is new law and the trial co- the, the district court is like i agree with everything that you said i don't think i have any authority to do anything about it. Mm. I don't know what you want me to do. I'm sorry. I don't know that I can do anything. What he does do, however, is he does grant a 10-day stay of the execution to allow for for Mr. Johnson's attorneys to appeal directly to the Supreme Court of the United States. This is the first time that the Supreme Court of the United States is being asked to weigh in on a death penalty case.
0: Wow. Wow. And so where, yeah, I mean, where do we, where do we go from here? How long did it take maybe for the Supreme court to acknowledge it and then step in, given a, what a 10 day stay of execution?
1: It became complicated. Um,
0: (laughs) I can imagine. (laughs)
1: The newspapers were not kind to be polite, Um, the newspapers all throughout Tennessee, even newspapers that might have been inclined to be sympathetic to Ed Johnson's situations, they did not take the stay of execution particularly kindly. Uh, Judge McReynolds claimed that federal judges had no authority to issue stays in state criminal cases, which was a legally sound argument at the time. Uh, the Tennessee governor granted a seven day stay of execution instead of a 10 day. So we've got a little bit of a brewing conflict right here already, Um, as to how long this day of execution is. Is it only going to be 10 days or is it going to be seven days? The more important thing is the governor at least was willing to give him more time than just two extra days. Um, And the newspapers, like basically every lawyer that was interviewed by the newspapers said that this is a frivolous appeal and it's going to get rejected pretty quickly because, again, there's no... There's no known authority at this moment in time
0: mm-hmm.
1: that that this is a legally sound argument. Um, the law offices, I mean, Mr. Pardon and Hutchins, their law offices, uh, it was burned to the ground on March 15th, which again just goes back to one of the issues that Noah Pardon was concerned about was their own physical safety. Um, rocks were thrown through uh, Style Hutchins's windows and gunshots were file, fired at Mr. Pardon's house. So, again, they're under siege on this. Um, so yeah, it's it's a bad situation overall. But even through all yeah. of that, Styles and Hutchins, uh, sorry Styles, just uh, pardon and pardon and Hutchins, still work through it. And, and on March 16, so five days later, they get an official appeal for the denial of federal habeas relief at the Supreme Court of the United States. So this is the first time that the Supreme Court's being asked to rule on a state criminal case. More importantly, it's also the first time in history that a black attorney is potentially going to be the lead counsel before the Supreme Court of the United States. This is wow. again, not anything's ever happened. Remember, uh, as I mentioned in the last episode, this is the, the Civil War ends, you know, 40 years ago. Um, you know, the concept, that's, that's how long we've had black attorneys at this point in time, is like about maybe 40 or so years. So this is the first time potentially a black attorney is going to be lead counsel. And they lucked out amazingly in the justice that heard their appeal. The justice that heard their appeal for the purposes of the state of emergency execution was uh, Justice John Marshall Harlan. And Justice Harlan is an absolutely... Legendary character in the history of the law. Um, he was born into a slaveholding family in Kentucky. Um, despite that, when he became of age, he supported the Union at the time the Civil War broke out. He arranged and led one of the volunteer divisions in Kentucky. Uh, he was eventually appointed to the Supreme Court of the United States as an associate justice, where he was the only justice to write a dissenting opinion. On the case of Plessy versus Ferguson, Plessy versus Ferguson is decided about ten years ago, 1896. That's the decision that enshrined segregation as the law of the law, uh, of, the law of the United States at the time. John Marshall Harlan is the only justice who dissents from that opinion. So, not only is there Appeal in front of that. The the other amazing thing about John Marshall Harlan is his grandson was also on the Supreme Court of the United States. This is the only time that you've ever had two family members on the Supreme Court. They were they were not on the Supreme Court at the same time, but Justice John Marshall Harlan the wrote the unanimous decision in Brown versus Board of Education, which overturned Plessy versus Ferguson. So. The, the the John Marshall Harlan legacy is is again something that um, that fortunately is a lot more celebrated. Um, that, that you mm-hmm. know, neither, both Justice Harlans are are very well regarded. Um, but that's an amazing stroke of luck for for Styles uh, for Styles Hutchins and Noah Pardon uh, that this is the man that gets to hear their appeal on staying the state on staying mm-hmm. the execution.
0: Right of all the options that would have existed, I mean, I'd say you you drew a pretty good hand, but boy, were they do one, and boy, was Ed Johnson do one by by now. So so walk us through, you know, Justice John, you know Harlan going through this process, weighing the different factors of this case. What does this all look like, and how does it shake out within the Supreme Court itself?
1: Well, what ends up happening is um, the way that the way that these types of appeals work, the, the way a petition for certiorari worked back then, um, the justices were, and, and they're still technically to an extent, they're assigned individual circuits that they review the petitions from. Uh, the difference was back in the early part of the 20th century, those arguments were a lot of times made directly to the justices, especially if it was an emergency situation. So Noah Pardon has effectively a private audience with Justice Harlan and argues that there were very specific violations of the 4th, 5th, 6th, and 14th Amendments, argued that the atmosphere in the community was so poisoned that it was impossible for Ed Johnson to receive a fair trial from an impartial jury. Everyone went into that courtroom knowing what they were going to do. They were there to give him a trial, and then they were there to hang him. So it takes two days for this process to go through. And on March 18, 1906, Noah Pardon steps on the platform from his returning train in Chattanooga, Tennessee, excitedly greeted by Stiles Hutchins. During the time frame that Noah Pardon was on his way back from Washington to Chattanooga, Stiles Hutchins receives a telegram from Washington, D.C. That telegram reads very specifically, have allowed appeal to accuse and habeas corpus case of Ed Johnson, signed John M. Harland, associate justice. It seems like they have finally won. The federal court has stepped in. The Supreme Court has said, we will hear the, ex- we will hear the federal claim. The execution's off. It seems like finally there has been some forward progress and something that represents a win as far as Ed Johnson is concerned.
0: Oh my gosh, a win indeed. And you know, I had just mentioned last time I popped on screen a win and getting Harlan to be a part of it. Clearly, Harlan delivered for mm-hmm. Ed Johnson and the team. So they get this win. It's the first one that they've likely seen. I mean, since since this all blew up and began, uh walk us through what this means for Ed Johnson, obviously, aside, you know, from the from the execution being off, but where does this take Ed Johnson moving forward? And how does this thing, you know, really play out in the Supreme Court?
1: Unfortunately, it does not play out very well for Ed Johnson. If you recall mm-hmm. uh, in the first case when the District Court uh, of Tennessee allowed for ordered a stay of execution to allow for a appeal to the Supreme Court of the United States, the newspapers were not particularly happy about the federal court sticking their nose in the state court business, um, being told that the Supreme Court was sticking their nose into a state court business, went over worse um it did not take long for the citizens of chattanooga to make everyone aware what they thought of this um on march 19 1906 the next day dozens of our men stormed the hamilton county jail there was absolutely no resistance there Um, Sheriff Ship claiming that any talk that anyone was talking about of a lynching was absolutely nonsense, took the decision of giving every single one of his deputies a night off. So Ed Johnson is all alone in his jail cell in basically an empty jail or certainly empty of anyone who might possibly protect him on this. And a couple dozen people have now shown up to storm the jail for the third time. And unfortunately, this time, Ed Johnson's actually in that jail. It took three hours. The the, the attack on the jail starts starts about 8 o'clock in the evening. And the mob is using old-style sledgehammers to basically break down the iron bars to get into Ed Johnson's cell. So Ed Johnson is on the opposite side of a cell watching an angry mom take sledgehammers to his cell door, beating it down, just pounding it over and over again, uh, mostly because he was forced to by other people. Sheriff Ship did actually show up at the jail to respond to the mob, um, but he was told that he needed to turn around and go home, to which the sheriff basically shrugged his shoulders and turned around and went home. Leadership in action, ladies and gentlemen.
0: Yeah, I mean talk about Ship making a, a one positive move for Ed Johnson yeah. earlier on. It's like it it seems as if he reached uh the the point of no return. He made his decision, let's put it, it that
1: way. Exactly. Yeah. So Ship mm-hmm. leaves you know the the deputy, the the 72-year-old jailer with the leg injury, he's escorted out. It takes three hours for the mob to break their way into Johnson's cell. So just just think about that from a three psychological Three hours, three hours of
0: people sitting there, cell oh doors, sitting there. It's horrible. Mm. So they, after they find, after everything you've already been subjected to, exactly. Like, oh my god. Exactly. They're just terrible. Absolutely terrible. So they drag him out of
1: the cell. They drag him. Um, they, they, they drag him to the local bridge that spans the Tennessee River. They put a noose around his neck, and they tell him that he might as well confess since there's absolutely nothing he could do to, to save his life. Um, naturally, this is getting a sizable crowd, so there are newspapers there because, of course, there are newspapers there. Newspapers are responsible for all this mess in the first place. But the newspaper reporters, they're, they're reporting that Mr. Johnson maintains his innocence while addressing the crowd. and And the quote that is attributed as being his last words are, I am ready to die but I never done it. I am going to tell the truth. I am not guilty. I am not guilty. I have said all the time that I did not do it. And that is true. I was not there. God bless you all. I am innocent. Those were his last words. Um, The crowd went absolutely insane. Um, They started lifting his body into the air by his neck. And, and again, this isn't a hanging. This isn't a situation where you're held by a noose. And your neck snaps as it drops. You are being strangled as you are being raised off of the ground. That's what the te- that's what this crowd is doing to Ed Johnson. So they've they, they've got him up there, and as his body's swinging. He's not dying fast enough, so um, the crowd just starts opening fire on him. And the the autopsy report indicates that he was shot approximately 50 times while he was suspended in the air. And then after his body falls to the ground, like it it eventually, one of the shots hit the rope, broke the rope, he crashes down. Even despite the fact he's very clearly dead at this point in time, someone walked up and shot him point blank five more times. And to add more insult to injury on this, they left a note on his body that said, to Justice Harlem, come get your attractive and successful African-American now. I, I think you can imagine what the word actually was, mm-hmm. um, but unfortunately, even though we're going over historical texts and historical accuracy, um, I don't want the channel to get stricken because that's what YouTube does these days, as is Facebook. Side issue, though, but that's that's the situation that we've got there. That's what's happened and it it did not take long for news to reach Washington on this. Um, the Supreme Court of the United States and then President Roosevelt learned of the lynching the following day. Um, and to say that no one knew what was going to happen next is an understatement. Um Justice Harlan, who signed the order granting the habeas petitions we mentioned a moment ago, Mm -hmm. Um, told the Washington Post that Johnson was tried by little better than mob law before the state court. He had the right to a fair trial and the mandate of the Supreme Court has, for the first time in the history of the country, been openly defied by a community. Um, The New York Times had a similar sentiment, stating that the open defiance of the Supreme Court of the United States has no parallel in the history of the court. No justice can say what will be done. All, however, agree in saying that the sanctity of the Supreme Court shall be upheld if the power resides in the court and the government to accomplish such a vindication the majesty of the law. Teddy Roosevelt wanted to send the United States Army into Chattanooga. That's how angry he was about the situation.
0: Wow. I'm, yeah.
1: He got talked out of it by then Attorney General William Moody. He got talked out of sending the Supreme Court down there. Um, he did send the Attorney General and two Secret Service agents down to Chattanooga to investigate the lynching. Uh, the investigation lasted for three weeks, and on May 28 of 1906, Attorney General Moody did something that has never been done before or been done since. He filed a petition charging sheriff's ship, six deputies, and 19 suspected leaders of lynch mob with contempt of the Supreme Court of the United States. The justices unanimously approved the petition and unanimously agreed to retain original jurisdiction of the case. If you remember to our first episode, there are two types of jurisdictions. There's original jurisdiction, which means this is the trial Mm -hmm. court. We are hearing everything. And then there's appellate jurisdiction. And most of the Supreme Court's decisions are based off of appellate jurisdiction. It is uncommon for the Supreme Court to have original jurisdiction over anything. But this time they said, no, no, this is our case. This is Mm -hmm. original jurisdiction. So on October 15, 1906, the United States Marshals were finally able to round everybody up. And on October 15, 1906, Sheriff Ship and 25 co-defendants became the only persons in the history of the United States to stand before the United States Supreme Court and plead not guilty. And they posted bond to be released from jail. Wow. First and only time that's ever happened. Mm. So what ended up happening is obviously, obviously, again, this is an original jurisdiction situation. Um, You've got all your original trial motions, things of that nature. One of the first things that the defendant's attorneys did is that they argued that the Federal Habeas Corpus Act of 1867 meant nothing that it didn't authorize the United States Supreme Court to intervene in a state criminal proceeding, didn't authorize federal courts to intervene whatsoever, Mm -hmm. and that there was no such thing as a federal right of habeas corpus. Um, The motion to dismiss, in addition to arguing that the Federal Habeas Corpus Act didn't exist, they also argued that the court didn't have any actual legal authority to stay the execution or declare him a federal prisoner while it considered the habeas filing. Uh, because the Supreme Court's original order stating the execution was invalid, the argument was that the justices could not legally find the sheriff and any other individuals guilty of violating an mm-hmm. illegal order. The argument being you can't break you cannot violate something that is already illegally ordered. Right. sure. Um, so that was that was the argument. And there was a lot of smart money that said that might be accurate. Again, as I mentioned a couple times already, the federal habeas corpus act of 1867 it's new law it's never been litigated it's never been tried no one knows what it does no one knows what federal constitutional rights are as relates to state criminal proceedings Mm -hmm. so there were a lot of attorneys out there very smart attorneys and very good attorneys who all says like that's a pretty good argument that actually might work it did not and the um the 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 court unanimously rejected that argument, and right. Oliver Wendell Holmes, one of the great justices that um, that ever sat on the court, his it, 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 it wasn't a long decision. It was it, they yeah, could have it just did. basically said denied and sent it back. But of course, because everything's on new ground with this, they're trying to kind of justify everything they're doing. But it's a relatively short decision. It's about a one page decision, and uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes writes in the decision denying the federal the, the, the motion for dismiss. He writes, this court and this court alone has jurisdiction to decide whether a case is properly before it and until its judgment declining jurisdiction is announced, it has the authority to make orders preserving the existing conditions and a willful disregard of those orders constitutes contempt. The power and dignity of this court are paramount. So basically a very verbal smackdown that says our jurisdiction is what we say it is. You don't get to decide our jurisdiction and you broke the rules. So now you get to see what the consequences are. So the trial continues. Mm -hmm. Um, And in, in very stark contrast to the trial that Ed Johnson received, the trial of United States versus ship starts on February 12th of 1907, so just over a year after Ed Johnson is sentenced to death for a crime, he almost certainly did not commit. Um, That's when the trial starts, is in 1907. To oversee the taking of testimony and the admission of evidence, what the Supreme Court did is they appointed their deputy clerk as special master for the proceedings. What we would refer to that as these days, excuse me, a, they basically appointed a magistrate to kind of deal with the preliminary issues for the trial, because um, even though the Supreme Court was still taking was was maintaining original jurisdiction over this matter, um, expecting them to actually sit through an entire trial was probably a little bit ambitious. So they appoint their clerk as special master is basically a magistrate uh, to oversee everything. The presentation of witnesses, cross-examinations, and the admission of evidence took place at the federal courthouse in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which was about nine blocks from the location that Ed Johnson was lynched. None of the justices actually attended the proceedings as they were unfolding, but they were getting um, they were getting briefs, they were getting um, information sent back to them and compiled. It took over a year for this phase of the trial to happen. So. Wow. Witnesses are sworn, evidence is heard, motions are constantly being argued. What ended up happening at the end of the day is based off of those arguments, based off of the way the evidence unfolded, the court did dismiss almost all of the defendants. Uh, Sheriff Joseph Shipp and eight other individuals were were maintained as uh, as defendants. Seventeen of them were ultimately dismissed as defendants for lack of evidence or or lack of support. So these guys unfortunately get a very thorough trial. They get a very fair showing in the situation, uh, and a lot of them get away with it. So now that all that's done, and now that we're down to basically the the final nine.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: On March 2nd, 1909, so so two years after the trial starts. This is again, this is technically an original jurisdiction situation. Their trial takes two years. The lawyers for both sides uh, meet in the uh, basement of the old Senate chamber. This is that which is where the Supreme Court was. This is the Supreme Court building that exists now has only been there um, since about 1920. Before then, the Supreme Court met in the basement of the Senate. Um, this is where the final arguments are happening Mm -hmm. um the, the both sides are given a full day to argue their case um the the lawyers for the defendants get a full day to argue their case uh and the attorney general of the united states um is personally making the argument to the supreme court um the justice deliberated over the decision for five days And um, in in April of 1909, um, they they reached their decision. And five of the eight justices, and the reason there's only eight justices deciding this is uh, William Moody, who was uh, the attorney general under President Roosevelt, Um, before Roosevelt left office and before this case made it as far as trial was concerned, um, Moody was nominated to the Supreme court. So he recused himself mm. from hearing the case based off the concept of conflict of interest. He investigated it as an attorney. He, it would be improper for him to sit on it as a judge. So there's only right. eight justices that are actually hearing this case. Sure. And the, of the eight justices that actually heard the case, five of them believe that Sheriff ship and the co defendants were guilty of disobeying an order of the court, The disagreement arose regarding the meaning of the verdict. Some of the justices believed the verdict was exclusively about preserving the integrity of the court, while others believed the court needed to send a message that lynch law would not be tolerated in this country. That's why there was a split. They all agreed that sticking your thumb in the eye of the Supreme Court, that's not permissible. We're not going to allow that to happen. Mm -hmm. Five of the justices thought that that's what needed to be done three of the justices thought it's like, no, no, you know, not only do you not stick your thumb in the eye of the court, you also don't get to lynch people. So for all the people who think that it's just the modern era that the Supreme court is really divided and, and really acrimonious, um, this is a decision where someone flaunted the court's authority and they still can't reach a unanimous, unanimous decision on it. Wow. So yeah. again, the more things change. <laughs> um <laughs> The the decision finally comes down. The decision is finally delivered on Mm -hmm. um, May 24th of 1909. Um, Chief Justice Melvin Fuller personally delivered the verdict. That was a little bit unusual during the history of the court. um, Chief Justice Fuller did not like reading the decisions. Um, He tended to allow other justices to write the decisions, other ones to write it. Due to the nature of this case, he believed that it was important for him to personally deliver the verdict of the court. Um, and that verdict found Sheriff ship, one of his deputies and four leaders of the lynch mob guilty of contempt. So even after that trial, there were still, there, there were defendants who were found to be not guilty. There were, there there were four of them who were found to be not guilty of that process. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the decision, you know, just chief justice Fuller starts by saying, it is apparent that a dangerous portion of the community was seized with the awful thirst for blood, which only a killing can quench. The persons who hung and shot this man were so impatient for his blood that they utterly disregarded an act of Congress as well as an order of this court. When anyone in custody is at the mercy of a mob, the administration justice becomes a mockery. When this court granted a stay of execution on Johnson's application, it became its duty to protect him until the case should be disposed of. And when its mandate issued for his protection was defied, punishment of those guilty of such attempt must be awarded. So, they were found guilty. Mm-hmm. They come back on November fifteenth of nineteen o nine. The remaining defendants appear before the court to receive their sentences. Sheriff Ship and two of the deputies were ordered to serve ninety days in jail. The other three defendants were only ordered to serve sixty days in jail. The sentences were going to be served at the United States jail in the district of Columbia and all six defendants were ultimately released early for good behavior, man. I would like to tell you, I'd like to tell you there's a happy ending somewhere in
0: this. Yeah. Yeah. We've been longing for it this whole time, Jack.
1: And and unfortunately there's not what, what ends up happening is, when Sheriff Ship returns to Chattanooga on January 10 of 1909, um, he's given a hero's welcome. Sure.
0: Uh,
1: there was a monument that was eventually erected in his honor. I'm on the, I on was about to say I encourage any of our listeners in Tennessee to maybe check that one out first, but uh, legally, I have to tell you not to do that. So you know, no one's going to be sad if that statue yeah. falls down, but I have to legally tell you not to attack it. Um Samuel McReynolds, uh, the judge who originally oversaw Ed Johnson's trial, he went on to serve in Congress for 18 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, Noah Pardon Stiles Hutchins never returned to Chattanooga after the lynching. Uh, they were they were so terrified for their lives, almost rightfully so.
0: Sure. No, um, understandably.
1: Um, mm-hmm. Mr. Stiles moved to Taft, Oklahoma, and gave up on the practice of law entirely. Um, Noah Pardon moved to East St. Louis, Illinois, where he did continue to practice law for the next 40 years. The thing that makes this case, aside from, again, just the general tragedy of the lynching of Ed Johnson as a whole, Mm -hmm. the thing that makes this case doubly tragic is if the mob hadn't murdered Ed Johnson, Noah pardon and Silas Hutchins would likely be remembered as two of the greatest litigators of the 20th century. Like I said, this, this would have been the first time that a black man argued an attorney before the full Supreme court of the United States. In addition to simply that precedent, you know, historical instance, the important thing is every single one of his arguments were right.
0: Yeah. Airtight. I mean, every yeah, single one of them,
1: every single one of them was right. You know, yeah. the 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 Supreme Court over the over the following years that they mm-hmm. the Supreme Court would rule the right to a fair trial is undercut by the threat of mob violence. They would agree that defendants have to be afforded the right to effective assistance to counsel, that criminal trials have to be open to the public, that there is a federal right to a fair trial in state proceedings. States can't systemically exclude potential jurors based off a of race and mm-hmm. federal state criminal defendants do absolutely have the right to sue in federal court. if They think that something was done wrong. Every single argument that yeah. that that pardon and, and Hutchins made, they were right. They were right yeah. about a law that no one knew what it did, that no one thought was going to work. And they were absolutely 100 percent correct.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, Jack, there is so much that goes into this case. Obviously we don't get the rainbow, you know, the the pot of gold at the end of what is most certainly not a rainbow. Um, but what we do get is a wild story. We hear about some incredible, you know, firsts in, in, you know, judicial history. Uh, and then also there are some incredible characters, you know, like Parsons or, um, excuse me, like, uh, Parsons Pardon. and Hutch. Pardon and Hutchins, Pardon and my, Hutchins my mistake. Yeah. Pardon and Hutchins you know, there is just, there's a lot of unbelievable information that pertains to this case. And the reason that we, you know, wanted to pick it and also kind of titled our our show today is the idea of this forgotten legal landmark is I would probably wager to say that most of the average Joe's out there, this is not one of those cases that's in there, you know, deep in the back of the brain that they remember from maybe government class in high school or college, you know, it's, it's, it's one that is really a forgotten legal landmark. Jack, Any final thoughts, you know, really maybe just thinking about the the importance of the case on history? Any final thoughts that you have for us in regards to this?
1: Making history is rarely a clean process. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: The history of the law is actually even messier. Um, The reason that this is a forgotten precedent is, is again, this was the first time that the Supreme Court ever – inserted itself into a state criminal proceeding. So all of the incredibly important decisions that came about in the years that followed, like Miranda versus Arizona, like Gideon versus Wainwright, like um, any stay of execution that the courts ever granted, this is where it all started. This is ground zero for modern federal jurisprudence as it relates to the several states. After this, um, the states were aware that those decisions could be reviewed. I'd like to say that they cleaned up their act, but again, that would be uh, optimistic and accurate. Um, Mm -hmm. Congress has, over the years, not exactly been friendly to that. In 1996, the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act uh, highly limited the ability of the Supreme Court to review federal/state death penalty cases. Um, but there is still an avenue to be able to get in there to review them. So just because the jurisdiction mm-hmm. has been limited, doesn't mean that uh, that it's over. Um, I will say that with one last with, with one last thing with regards to Ed Johnson you can actually still visit his gravesite his grave is still there it's it's managed to survive um it's it's an old negro cemetery on missionary ridge just outside of chattanooga ed johnson's grave ed, ed johnson's still buried there's gravestone still there um his headstone is is in horrifically terrible disrepair there was not a lot of money for it in the first place there's not really been any significant effort to preserve it or maintain it but it's still there and on his on the headstone um are his final words god bless you all i'm an innocent man and he and he almost certainly was and that's the worst part about all of this
0: yeah yeah, uh, for, for, you know, part of me thinks, you know, the fact that he still, after not only the the craziness involving the trial, the multiple attempts, you know, with mobs coming into the jail, then three hours of pounding on jail cells, uh, you know, for, for the mob to get in there and, and to get him, the fact that he still had the, um, the good nature to say, God bless you. Uh, as as a final word quite quite a uh quite a thought quite a concept honestly um
1: definitely yeah. a better man than a lot of us would
0: be amen to that so look jack i, I so i I really appreciate you kind of you know unpacking what is two episodes worth of a suitcase on this episode, you know, on this topic, this forgotten legal landmark of United States first ship. Uh, It was certainly an education for myself going through and getting ready for these episodes with you and learning. And I am, uh, you know, if there's one thing that I'm excited about with our show here in closing arguments is, is these other case studies that we're going to jump into some other awesome legal landmarks, not only, you know, personally to you, but also, you know, personally to all of us, you know, Supreme court legal landmarks. Uh, We've got a lot of great conversations ahead, a lot of great episodes that we're going to be diving into on the show moving forward uh and i'm just i'm I'm really looking forward to that so thank you for for your time today and really over the last two episodes to kind of you know showcase this this forgotten legal landmark to us all
1: absolutely as always it's a pleasure i promise our next episode is going to be far less sobering and far less of a of a gut punch um mm-hmm. but you know again history you, you have to know where history how history is made that's you, yeah. you can't avoid it that's all there is to it
0: yep well, and Hey, we planned a little bit more of a light and heartening episode <laughs> <We> <laughs> Come next time. That's, that's how we plan it. So, so hang with us. Don't worry. We're not all, uh, we're all, not all doom and gloom here. Um uh, but no, appreciate you, Jack. Take it easy. Thanks for joining us. And look, hey, we want to say one final word as a thank you to our audience for jumping aboard these last two episodes in particular. Uh, you know, hey, if you like the show, you're enjoying these kind of case studies, these uh, you know legal proceedings, and uh, on, honestly, these closing arguments, if you will, do us a favor: like the show, comment on it, subscribe to whichever platform you're checking us out on, and then of course share this information with friends family, you know, anybody who would enjoy these types of conversations at the end of the day, you know, we're diving into, you know, criminal law related discussions that Jack and his team over at Razumich and Associates are knee deep in every day. We've got a lot of great conversations, a lot of great case studies that we're going to be jumping into in future episodes. We would hate to have you miss out on any of those. So for Mr. Jack Razumich, I'm Ryan Ruff. We're going to go ahead and say so long today. We thank you so much for joining us on today's edition of Closing Arguments.